Happy Father's Day to all fathers and father figures throughout the world. May you love well and be well loved. And I want also to say happy Juneteenth to one and all. But happy here is maybe not happy in what might be called the usual ways. To be sure, Juneteenth is a thing full of wonder. Wonder about the uncomfortable truth that, like much in life, this day commemorates process rather than event. The way human experience of healing happens. So the wonder has a lot to do with the great power and potential that exists between the event of Juneteenth itself and the reality that it hasn't brought about complete realization of racial justice. There is wonder, and there is likely spiritual discomfort. What is your experience of the cognitive dissonance between symbolic event and actual reality? Are you able to be present with it in, a, in an abiding way? I hope so, because I think that's exactly where Jesus wants you. Well, maybe not so much wants you there, as much as he knows that when you are there, that you're in that place of power and great potential. In preparation for this moment, I dove into the pool of information that is at last available to us regarding Juneteenth. My search criteria, and this turns out to be quite telling, a key feature, in fact, of the spiritual place I want to explore today, I searched, why did it take so long for Juneteenth to happen? Tons of content came up about why the original event itself took more than two years to happen, about why it took 158 years for the event and its significance to gain national recognition. My internet search, I must confess, arose from places of incredulity, resentment, and anger. And I want you to think about whether you think such anger is justified. And then, does that justification necessarily make it part of God's purpose? Notice whether you have anger and resentment and then carefully observe if thoughts of retribution follow. As you hear the following, Texas was the last state in which enslaved people officially gained their freedom. It took army troops to even get the message of freedom delivered to Galveston, and then ongoing military presence to enforce the law. Many of us in this room, I certainly speak for myself, and maybe for a lot of white folks my age and older, many of us had no idea that Juneteenth was even a thing until pretty recently. 
For instance, I was ordained to the priesthood on this day in 2010, with exactly no mention of Juneteenth. There is real spiritual presence in the occasion we commemorate today. The writing of wrongs hanging upon scales of spiritual justice with who was wronged. And the imbalance of those scales, exactly why things unfolded so unjustly and why the injustice persists to this day. Colorado University's Chief Diversity Officer, Theodosia Cook, puts it quite clearly, saying, Juneteenth symbolizes freedom, but it also acknowledges that the United States of America was built upon the denial of freedom to black people. A statement that is both infuriating and liberating for its truthfulness. Great spiritual discomfort grows, hopefully grows, as our understanding grows, our understanding of the horrors shrouded by our sanitized national history. So what becomes of that discomfort? And what do you suppose Jesus would do about it? How would he be present with the tension between symbolic event and historical reality? And then, how would he translate that inward tension into outward behavior? I confess, I don't find as many clues in today's gospel as I do in the fragment of Paul's letter to the Galatians. For instance, in Christ there is no longer slave or free. It's like in that one idea, Jesus approaches the same space of power and potential we often find in opposites, but he does so kind of from the opposite direction, which says a great deal about his nature, his loving equanimity, and how he sees loving equanimity as something that can become a reality in the world. In the minds of many, from the very beginning, interpretation of Jesus' teachings and nature have been greatly influenced by his followers. In the abstract, that's not too difficult to accept. But how about when it becomes a suggestion that the Gospel writers themselves worked pretty hard in some places to attribute their own values to Jesus? Still not so surprising, perhaps. But continue to, do, to drill down into the implications here, and you may quickly come to places that risk changing your picture of Jesus. What I'm now going to suggest may seem like I'm trying to take away your pretty picture of Jesus, but hear me out. You see, I don't believe that if Jesus had walked the earth in 1863, or if he was walking the earth on this very day, I don't believe he'd be organizing protests on behalf of racial justice, or even participating in them, which may sound shocking to you. I mean protesting for racial justice and organizing to create corrective and protective legislation are good things, right? And Jesus is good, right? So 
So naturally, good and good go together, right? Well, yes and no. While I believe Jesus would admire communal efforts toward healing in this way, I think he'd stop short of saying, you know, it's a good habit for you to get into this business of your discerning something to be good and then attributing that discernment to me. It's not that I think he would take this position as some kind of power play. Sure, there's definitely power and potential here, but I think what he wants us to understand that is that it's power of a different kind. Power that comes from the opposite direction. Jesus' main concern for humanity is that we come to live in active and alert submission to God's will. Willingly, not as a punishment. In regard to an event like Juneteenth and maybe all matters of justice, he expressed approval of socially determined and executed consequences for evildoers and criminals, and even averred that civil governments must sometimes use force to maintain social order. But we must never forget that he also saw this as a very slippery slope, one that, once you set foot upon it, requires ultimate scrupulousness, exquisite self-monitoring of the extent to which your motivation is or is not born of revenge or re retribution. That is the key. That is the point upon which everything turns. And it's a very challenging place to be, right? I feel consequences are good. In fact, something inside me thrills at the notion that all the perpetrators of the January 6th insurrection will be sorely punished. So if that's good and Jesus is good, the two must go together, right? No. Jesus never, ever, ever made allowance for the idea of getting even. He discounted the entire concept of personal or private revenge, insisting instead that measures of accountability are the exclusive province of civil governments on one hand and of God on the other, full stop. His messaging to the disciples was amazingly consistent. My teachings apply to the individual only, not the state. Of course, Jesus recognized the need for social justice and economic fairness, but he offered no rules for their attainment. I don't believe he ever intended to formulate social or political theories. I think he knew that each age must evolve its own remedies for existing troubles. For him to have done otherwise would have been the very definition of unsustainability. If Jesus were on earth today, living his life in the flesh, he'd probably be a great disappointment to a great many, for the simple reason that he would not take sides in present-day political, social, or economic disputes. He would remain grandly removed, like a loving father. He knew that our only chance of knowing the kingdom of heaven here on earth is for us to learn how to make it happen ourselves, each and every one of us. He'd more than likely resume his teaching us 
how to perfect the inner spiritual life so as to render each one of us that much more competent to work out the solutions to our purely human problems. I believe Jesus is more concerned about making us each godlike so that he could stand sympathetically and admiringly by as we solve our own political, social, and economic problems. And here is where the absolute perfection of Juneteenth as an example for us comes in. Some of you may know that I like to use the 12-step folks as an example of Christian best practices. In that healing process, there's no crosstalk, no advising even, and certainly no criticism or blaming. Only an interest in conscious contact with God or higher power by whatever name you wish. And while it's not a direct comparison, I wonder if the healing process of, well, pretty much all black folks, the very long and low arc of that healing process, isn't somehow in harmony. You see, while 12-steppers have made a spiritual choice not to criticize or blame, black folks, well, they never had such a luxury. They couldn't have criticized or blamed their oppressors, even if they wanted to. The mind boggles with images of the fresh hell that would surely result if one were to but raise their eyes. Blame, criticism, even questioning, not even options, makes what I thought was an innocuous question why did it take so long for Juneteenth to happen? Makes that sound unbelievably privileged, if not arrogant. Jesus never, ever, ever made allowance for the idea of getting even. And while to you and me that may at first cause discomfort, it's discomfort born of having agency in the matter. For our black siblings, survivors of untold horrors, many of which still refuse to go away, there simply was no agency. We who didn't know until recently that Juneteenth was even a thing, we could shudder to our core sobbing inside every day for the rest of our lives and still not know. And what did they do about it? Miraculously, they sought to maintain conscious contact with God. For starters, they prayed. They found ways to pray and worship that had authenticity and meaning. Prayer became the sincere and longing look of the child to the Spirit Father. Prayer and worship, so often in secret, took on the markings of mind, body, and spirit ways in the exchange of human will for divine will. Not because injustice is ever divine will, no, never, but because prayer is necessary to the divine plan for making over that which is into that which ought to be. They prayed, they worshipped, and they lived their lives. 
For our black siblings, Juneteenth can and ought to be a celebration. Colorado University's Antonio Farias points out that the Middle Passage attempted to strip the humanity, culture, religion, and life of a vast diversity of African nations and states. And yet, the vibrancy of black culture during Juneteenth remains a testament to the resilience, creativity, and joy of a people. Our brothers and sisters on a path toward true justice. African Americans began celebrating Juneteenth within one year of the Galveston Proclamation. According to Henry Louis Gates, in one of the most inspiring grassroots efforts of the post-Civil War period, freed slaves transformed June 19th from a day of unheeded military orders into their own annual right. Many African Americans participated then, and even more do now, in Juneteenth celebrations. Parades, street fairs, family reunions, park parties, cookouts, music festivals. It's one of the most powerful demonstrations of foregoing retaliation in favor of the rhythmic and repeated choosing of the next best and most loving thing to do. In closing, I would like to take us for a last look at St. Paul's letter and see how it resonates now. Now before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. For in Christ Jesus, we are all children of God through faith. There is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free, there is no longer black or white. For all of us are one in Christ Jesus. Let us pray, loving God, stay with us in all the ways that will strengthen and inspire us to make this so. Amen.